Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Russ Kennel tells us the top funds investors are buying. Dave Sequeira tells us what opportunities await in the fourth quarter. Christine Ben shares the secret to financial success. And we add some financial tasks to your October to-do list. Let's get started. Here are Russ Kennel from Morningstar Research Services and Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Which funds are investors buying in 2021? Joining me today to discuss the fund flows so far this year is Russ Kinnell. Russ is Morningstar's Director of Manager Research and Editor of Morningstar Fund Investor. Hi, Russ. How are you? Good. Glad to be here. Nice to see you. Um, so let's talk a little bit about fund flows for the year to date. Um, are we continuing to see the same trends we've been seeing? Is anything standing out to you as a little bit different? What's going on? Uh, well, two, two of the biggest trends are uh, bond funds, core bond funds, and equity index funds. So those are really not anything new. Uh, among the smaller categories of note, uh, bank loan funds have had big draw of assets, and so have uh, TIPS funds, inflation-protected funds. Well, then let's talk a little bit about some of the um, more highly rated and hot-selling funds this year, the first being a TIPS fund, ironically, uh, Vanguard Short-Term Inflation-Protected Securities. That earns a gold fund analyst rating from us and has raked in about $12 billion so far this year in assets. Popular category, evidently, what's, what's been going on with that fund? Yeah, well, in, in, in this case, uh, most of that money is coming from Vanguard itself. Their uh, target date funds uh, recently really dialed up uh, their exposure to that fund, and it makes sense if you're in a retirement account, one of your threats is inflation, and a short-term TIPS fund uh, means you're going to have very little interest rate risk and inflation protection. Uh, now, the yields and returns are pretty low if inflation stays low, uh, but you don't have the interest rate risk that you would have with a longer-term TIPS fund. Another popular fund this year has been um, PIMCO Income, one of the more popular taxable bond funds. Um, it's a multi-sector bond fund, um, and we assign it a silver rating. So what's been the attraction in particular this year with PIMCO Income? Um, well, I think really the, the same attraction that's had for a long time, which is Dan Iveson's produced really good performance. It's a fairly aggressive uh, bond fund, Ta- takes on a fair amount of credit risk, but it's delivered good yield and good returns over long haul. Um, this is really, since PIMCO total, re- since Bill Gross left total return, PIMCO income's really been their flagship and investors continue to pour more money in. So let's, let's pivot over and talk about stock funds. Uh, Columbia Dividend Income has been pretty popular this year, and it recently brought on a new co-manager. So what's, what's going on there? Uh, yeah, this is a, though it's a dividend income fund, it really emphasizes quality. So the yield isn't really any better than your typical large value fund. But Scott Davis has done a really good job of stock selection, uh, put in some good defensive qualities. The fund held up very nicely in 2020. Uh, so I think that's part of the appeal. Uh, but it's, it's just a very good, uh, straightforward value fund uh, with an experienced manager at the helm. And then lastly, um, Calamos Market Neutral Income, it's a relative value arbitrage fund. Um, what's the attraction been there this year? And we, we have expressed a little bit of concern, perhaps, about the asset base there, right? That's right. Uh, obviously, when you look at a list of uh, funds drawing a lot of assets, uh, that's one of the concerns, and certainly for this strategy, because uh, it does two different things. One, 
convertible arbitrage, which means you buy the convertible bond and then you short the equity. Uh, and then it also does a hedged equity uh, strategy. And of course, the convertible universe is not that big. And so it's one that it's a strategy that is sensitive to assets. Uh, so uh, it, one would hope they would uh, close fairly soon. Uh, but it, it is a good fund. We rate it bronze. Um, as it, the market neutral name implies, it's one that you can buy in hopes that uh, it might have a positive return in a down market. No guarantees uh, with market neutral funds, but it, there's still that potential. And so people like that diversification uh, potential. Well, Russ, thank you for your time today and for putting some of these high inflow funds in perspective. We appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Dave Sequeira from Morningstar Research Services gives us his fourth quarter outlook. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. The stock market was essentially flat during the third quarter, rattled by a resurgence in COVID-19 cases, market valuations, and an acknowledgement that the Federal Reserve will begin to taper its asset purchase program. So what can investors expect for the remainder of the year? Joining me today to share some insights is Dave Sequeira, Dave is Morningstar's chief U.S. market strategist. So Dave, how do stocks look heading into the fourth quarter? Are we seeing more opportunities or fewer opportunities than we were a quarter ago? Well, Susan, we actually are seeing more opportunities for investors today. We do see more four and five star rated stocks that we think are undervalued and are certainly good opportunities for investors to be able to put money to work. Now, it's interesting, as you mentioned, you know, for the third quarter, the stock market overall was relatively flat. And actually, if you look at our price to fair value for those stocks that we cover, you know, that composite that we put together, you know, we still see the stock market overall being at the high end of our fair value range. So right now, we think the market's about 4% overvalued, which is actually the same area that it was at the end of last quarter. However, based on that market action that we saw over the course of the summer, you know, those stocks that we thought were overvalued, a lot of those growth stocks, for example, actually became more overvalued as people returned to their 2020 pandemic playbook, whereas those stocks that we thought were undervalued, such as value stocks, became more undervalued over the course of the summer. So that's what led us to this point now that we do see more four and five star stocks. So let's talk first a little bit about sectors. You know, which sectors look most overvalued as we're heading into the fourth quarter? Well, the two that I'd probably point to the most right now would be the healthcare sector and the real estate sector. Now, of course, just because the sector itself is overvalued from a broad sector perspective, you know, doesn't mean that there still aren't individual stocks within those sectors that we think are undervalued. So, for example, in the real estate sector, you know, two stocks that I would highlight right now would be Maesterich, which specializes in retail malls. And there's a new one now that is dropped down into, uh, well, actually rose up to four-star category, depending on how you look at it. But Americold, which I think is interesting, it specializes in cold distribution. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the opposite then. Which sectors look undervalued to us today? Well, first and foremost is still the energy sector. And that's been the sector, you know, for several quarters now we've seen as being, you know, the most undervalued. So from a broad sector perspective, 
Yeah, we think it's about 15% undervalued, and that's across you know, all the different categories, all the different capitalizations. So whether investors you know, are looking to participate in the energy sector in individual stocks, which of course I certainly would recommend, or ETFs or mutual funds, you know, I do think that's a really good area that investors should be thinking about overweighting in their portfolios today. And earlier in our conversation, you alluded to growth and value. Let's do a little bit of a deep dive there. How does growth, mm -hmm. how do growth stocks look these days compared to value stocks? Well, in our view, the growth stocks have gotten a little bit pricey at this point. You know, they're definitely in the overvalued category and a little bit more overvalued than where we saw them at the end of last quarter. Now, having said that, based on that market action where the large caps and the mid caps actually outperformed this past quarter compared to small caps, which we actually saw some sell-off among a number of the different small cap names, we actually see the small cap category within growth overall is being undervalued. So for investors that are interested in being in the growth space now, I'd certainly focus that as being an area to you know, overweight in the growth category overall. Now, the value category, we think all of value right now is undervalued. Having said that, the mid-cap and the small-cap areas are certainly the most undervalued within the value category. Now, let's talk a little bit about quality and high-quality stocks. Um, we would define those at Morningstar as stocks that have carved out wide economic moats. So are these wide moat stocks outperforming, underperforming? Are they undervalued, overvalued? What do they look like today? So our wide moat focus index actually did underperform slightly over the course of the summer. However, year to date, it's still handily beating you know, the overall broad market index. You know, we do still recommend investors to focus on companies that do have wide economic moats. And when I break down our valuations, we find that wide moat stocks are slightly undervalued, not necessarily undervalued enough to really be making you know, a big call there. But when you look at it relative to where we rate you know, no moat stocks and narrow moat stocks, it's a much better place to be on a relative value basis. And again, there's a lot of other reasons we think Modi stocks are a good place to be. So again, while our base case is that we expect inflation will subside next year, you know, if we're wrong, I think wide moat stocks oftentimes have the pricing power that would be needed for them to be able to pass through their own cost increases to their clients and then be able to maintain margins. And then, so let's sum up, Dave. You know, if investors are thinking about maybe making some tweaks to their portfolios at the fringes right now, you know, what in general might they be considering? Where are we seeing the value? Well, and of course, that's always going to depend on an individual investor's risk tolerance in their own you know, portfolio and where they are in the investing cycle. Having said that, you know, I would certainly focus on and be willing to recommend you know, overweighting the value category, especially in those mid-cap and those small-cap stocks that we think are undervalued. And I think you should still have you know, exposure to the growth space. But again, based on our numbers, we think that the small cap within growth is a better place to be. Well, Dave, thank you so much for your time today for both the recap of the last quarter and the look forward to what might be ahead. We appreciate your time. Oh, well, thank you, Susan. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Next, Christine Benz from Morningstar Inc. shares her tips to boost your savings rate. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Investors often like to focus on choosing exactly the right investment or finding the very best way to save on taxes. But Morningstar's Christine Benz believes the secret to financial success is more mundane. Find some money in your budget to save more. She's here with me to discuss three simple ways to bump up your savings rate. Hi, Christine. Thanks for being here today. Hi, Susan. It's great to see you. So you've 
you always hear that, you know, every little bit helps, right, when you're saving for retirement. And you've actually brought a real example of how saving just a little bit more can actually have a very big impact on your returns and, and your nest egg if you have a long enough runway. Tell us, show us your example. Yeah. So assume we've got a 21-year-old who has that really nice long runway until retirement. They can find $100 in their budget to save and earn a 5% rate of return, which I think is reasonable, assuming that that person would have an equity-heavy portfolio and keep at it for uh, 40 four years until retirement at age 65, well, that person would have $200,000 at age 65, simply socking away 100 bucks a month. So I think that's a great example. If you can find $150 in your budget, that takes it up to $300,000. So I, I think the key point is that you don't need to be maxing out your 401k necessarily. Some high income savers absolutely should. If all you can do is start small, start small, because it, those small sums really can add up. So you've bought three ideas today that investors can think about as, as ways to sort of find that $100, find that $150, find that extra money to start investing. And your first idea is to steer some of your tax refund towards savings and investing. That's right. A stunning percentage of taxpayers do receive refunds. In fact, like three-fourths of taxpayers in 2020 got some kind of a refund, and the average refund was about $2,500. Now, that is skewed by some higher-income taxpayers who receive very large refunds. But nonetheless, if you are someone who finds yourself with that windfall every year, you should think about getting that money invested. Um, some people might say, well, you've just given the IRS a interest-free loan for the past year, and that's absolutely true. But I would still say that suboptimal savings is better than no savings. So if, if this is the only way that you can save through this sort of forced saving program of, of paying extra in your taxes, go for it and invest the money when you get the refund. And the nice thing about tax refunds is that they coincide very nicely with IRA season. So for each tax year, we typically have until our tax filing deadline, often April 15th, to make that IRA contribution. If you get a refund, why not just steer it into an IRA for the year prior? Uh, now, another strategy you suggest is if you're fortunate enough to get a salary increase or bump up in a given year, think about at least saving a portion of that and investing it, right? Absolutely. And I like the idea of increasing your contribution within your 401k, assuming you have a good quality 401k, even before that higher salary begins to hit your paycheck. And the idea is that you won't miss the additional funds if you start saving them right away, you won't get used to that sort of lifestyle creep that often accompanies salary increases. And another point I would make, Susan, is that right now we find ourselves in an environment where employees are very much in the driver's seat at many employers and certainly in many industries where employees are able to command higher salaries. So I love the idea of if you have been eligible for some sort of an increase, steering a portion of that into a higher 401k contribution. A countervailing force, and it may be fleeting, is that we have also had some higher cost of living increases come online, some higher food prices, higher gas prices, and so forth. 
So you may not be able to bank as much as you would have hoped. But again, even if you can set aside a small additional sum to invest, that'll help in the long term. So I would, I would think about that. Another thing that I would notice that many 401k plans make this super easy for you by offering a feature called auto escalation or automatic escalation it can be as simple as uh, checking a box. And basically you're telling your 401k provider that when you see higher income, you can go ahead and bump up my contribution. That's a terrific way to make your savings rate go higher as the years go by. And then lastly, Christine, you suggest that, you know, if you are a homeowner, perhaps you consider refinancing and take some of the money you would save there and save it and invest it. That's right. We've seen mortgage rates tick up very recently, but they're still incredibly low relative to history. So if you are someone who has a mortgage and you can refinance into a lower rate, I love trying to use those savings, those interest and borrowing savings to help steer that toward higher retirement plan contributions or higher savings contributions elsewhere. So think about that. I think another strategy, it won't necessarily free up funds to save, would be to swap into a shorter term on your mortgage. That's another idea. But if you are simply reducing your borrowing costs, by all means, see if you can't steer a portion of that to higher savings on an ongoing basis. Well, Christine, thank you for your time today and helping us find some, you know, extra dollars to save and hopefully plump up our nest eggs. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. And lastly, Christine Benz and Susan Jabinski start preparing us for year end. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. We've entered the fourth quarter of 2021 and year end will be here before we know it. Joining me to share what should be on your financial to-do list this October is Christine Benz. She's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning. Hi, Christine. Thanks for being here. Hi, Susan. It's great to see you. So we're you're saying that it's a good idea around now for investors to sort of stay a little bit plugged in to some of those potential tax changes that they're talking about in Washington right now. Uh, can you sort of sum them up for us and, and what really should be on our radar? Right. It's a really wide-ranging tax reform proposal. One of the big line items involves higher income and capital gains rates for high-income individuals. Uh, so 400000 is the income threshold for a lot of these changes. If you're in excess of that, you would be subject to the higher rates, $450,000 for married filing jointly. Then there are some also some proposals that relate to retirement savings, specifically clamping down on higher income individuals' ability to take advantage of some of these tax sheltered mechanisms for retirement savings. So some one of the big ones that we've been keeping an eye on relates to this idea of what's been called the backdoor Roth IRA. And there's also a separate maneuver called the mega backdoor Roth IRA. This is basically a, a technique that people are currently using whereby they're putting after-tax contributions into their IRAs, or in the case of the mega backdoor Roth IRA, they're putting an after-tax contribution into a 401k, and then they're converting those dollars to Roth. 
And if this is executed properly, this is typically not going to result in a big tax bill and will let higher income folks enlarge their balances in Roth IRAs and Roth 401ks. Well, Congress needs to find ways to raise revenue. So this is obviously a loophole that people have been taking advantage of for the past 10 years since the income limits on IRA conversions were lifted. It looks likely that there will be a change here where going forward, starting in 2022, if, if this passes through Congress, people will no longer be able to convert those after-tax dollars to Roth. So that would mean the end to the backdoor Roth IRA and the mega backdoor Roth IRA. You can still do it for 2021, but keep an eye on this space because we might see some activity here. So then say this, this, this does pass and this is no longer going to be an option for investors starting in 2022. What, what are some other options for high-income people? It's a good question. They can still take advantage of 401k contributions. So I would start there. Health savings accounts would be very attractive to higher income folks, especially those who can use their health savings account to be a tax sheltered additional savings receptacle. Um, many high income folks may say, well, given the contribution limits on HSAs, that's kind of a drop in the bucket. I think the next step from there will be to look at taxable accounts and just look at how you might invest tax efficiently within the taxable account. You'll still be able to contribute after tax dollars to a traditional IRA. There aren't any income limits there. The question is why you would, because when you pull the money out in retirement, the investment earnings component would be subject to ordinary income tax. If you invest in a taxable brokerage account, you can take advantage of the lower capital gains tax rate. So my bias would be to focus your energy there on a taxable brokerage account. And the good news is that you can use ETFs, you can use traditional index funds, you can use municipal bonds, all of which can help keep those ongoing tax bills way down on taxable brokerage accounts. So I expect that we'll see more interest there, even more interest there than usual from higher, higher income savers. Now, another to-do that you're giving us for October, for some of us, at least in October, is to sort of take a look at college savings. And, and you're saying that, of course, this is obviously for people with kids, but it also might be for, say, grandparents or aunts and uncles or other people who have, you know, young people in their lives who they might want to contribute some college savings dollars to. Um, what should be on their radar? Well, I think that you want to check out the tax-sheltered savings options for college. 529s have emerged as really the best option in that the tax advantages are the greatest. You can get the most in this account type, and you can receive a, a state tax break, assuming that you invest in your home state's plan. Some states actually give a tax break, even if you invest out of state. So just investigate your home state's plan and what the rules are around it. 
Um, so start with the 529, start with your home state's 529, but do your due diligence. And I know that our manager research team has been hard at work uh, for several years now researching 529s. It's a pretty opaque space. There's not a lot of clarity for consumers, but we do have ratings on 529 plans. And the good news is that 529 plan quality has lifted quite a bit, I think in part because of some of the work that the team here has been doing. Doing, shining a light on some of those 529s that did have high expenses or were otherwise subpar. So start with a 529 plan. Some people may want to use UGMA, UTMA accounts, but I think you really need to keep in mind the interplay between financial aid considerations and those types of accounts. They tend to be treated more punitively from the standpoint of, of financial aid. 529s also may affect financial aid eligibility as well. So perhaps get some advice here if you are looking to save a lot in a 529. But I would say a 529 would be probably the first choice if you're looking to set aside significant sums for college savings. And if you are considering college savings, how should you be thinking about asset allocation for that pot of money? Yeah, great, great question, Susan. This is a place where I think the age-based options are a godsend in terms of taking the guesswork out of how to allocate those college savings funds. So you simply match your child's re, uh, college savings with wherever he or she is in terms of, of, of age. And you should be in a, a age-appropriate mix. If for whatever reason you're doing this on your own and you're calibrating your own asset allocation for college, the key message I would impart, especially given what a long-running equity rally we've had, is that strikes me as a great time to de-risk if you have children who are in high school. And certainly if they're getting within a few years of college, I would absolutely think about taking risk off the table. You've had a good run in equities, presumably, but I think the last thing that you'd want to have, have happen is to be hanging out there with an overly risky 529 portfolio as college draws close. You really need to rein in the risk, get into uh, bonds and other short-term assets. It's about really just sort of preserving your purchasing power as college draws very close. Well, Christine, thank you for your time today and for um, giving us some financial to-dos to think about for the month of October. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski. Thanks for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. 
Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.